Tuesday, we've been reading through the epistle to the Romans, and after a couple months, we finally finished Romans chapter 8, 
And it's been said of Romans chapter 8 that if the whole Word of God were a buffet, Romans chapter 8 would be the main course, and it seems to ring true. It's been a great blessing for us to study through it. So I want to read this passage today, and it starts with, those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation, and ends with those same individuals, there is no separation. So let's stand for the reading of the Word. So there is there therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God really dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though your bodies are dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the one, the Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through the Spirit that dwells in you. So brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. He has not given us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. He has given us a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. We do that. The Spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we suffer with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the whole creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the whole creation would be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans together like pains of childbirth and not the creation only. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we groan within ourselves. Likewise, groan within ourselves waiting our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In that hope we were saved. And who hopes for what he sees? For hope that is seen is not hope. But if you hope for what you do not see, you wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray as we ought. 
But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. For we know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What are we going to say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not freely also with him give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is going to condemn? It is Christ Jesus that died that is raised, yes, that is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither, neither life nor death nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I think we should stand here. And remember, to whom we say, once again, it's all about Jesus.
So, hiya. Hi. Everybody have a good week. I appreciate Steve standing here on Wednesday night and doing the teaching. My week did not work out exactly the way I anticipated. But you walk long enough with God, you realize the reality that men do set their own plans and their own agendas, and then God does what he wants to do, regardless of what you've got planned. So our week was different than we planned. A few minutes ago, Micah stood up here and recited Romans 8. And when he got done, Steve accurately said, what can I say but wow. Now, when Steve said that, I don't think he was saying, wow, look at Micah. He memorized the entirety of Romans 8. I think Steve was saying, wow, what a great word Romans 8 is. Romans 8 contains so much theology and so much comfort and so much grandeur and so much really ruthless logic on the part of Paul as he lays out his case for the absolute sovereignty of Christ in salvation. So my point in bringing that up is the word of God I have contended for All the years that we've been here at GCA, the word of God is sufficient. The word of God says what it means to say. These are the words that God chose to use because these are the words that best conveyed the meaning that he was trying to convey to the people he was calling to himself. The word of God is sufficient. You don't need If you're going to present the gospel to someone, if you're going to preach to anyone, anytime you are saying anything representing God, the Bible is sufficient. You just have to say what the Bible says, and they will either hear it or they won't. How many folks in here would be willing to say in your life in the church, you have heard a whole lot of stuff that is not in the Bible anywhere? That'd be everybody. Every hand was raised right then. Why is that? Why is it that you can go to church and even though the Bible is sufficient, it will tell you everything you need to know about your relationship with God. It will tell you about your guaranteed salvation as a result of Christ's finished work. Absolutely everything you need for your faith and dependence and life with God is laid out in the Bible and yet people will feed you other stuff. Sometimes silly stuff. I'm aware of a church out in Los Angeles that I went to a couple of times that that actually stood by the door with a yardstick to determine whether the women's skirts were the proper length. That's not in the Bible anywhere. I've been to churches that men's hair can't be too long. In fact, one of the elders who was quite adamant about the length of hair actually had a comb over that was longer across the top of his head than most men's hair down the back that he complained about. 
So I figured out that the rule in that particular church was it doesn't matter how long your hair is, it matters whether it's perpendicular to the floor or whether it's horizontal with the floor. Horizontal with the floor, good and holy. Perpendicular to the floor, sinful. I figured that out. Why? Well, these are traditions. That's my point. And today we're going to see Jesus say that the traditions of men make the word of God of no effect. They void out the word of God. And we just agreed that the word of God is sufficient. The word of God will do what it's supposed to do. That's what God said. That his word would not return to him void, but it would accomplish that whereunto he sent it. He sent it to do particular things, and it's going to do those things because it was sent by an all-powerful God. So it seems to me that if you're going to represent him and his word, it is incumbent that you actually broadcast the exact same word that he has put forth because that word is capable of doing exactly what God intends for it to do. But... If you mess with that word, if you change that word, if you alter that word, if you twist that word, if you take that word and use it like a wax nose to fit your face better, Paul's word, if you pervert the gospel, then is God's word going to accurately do what it was called to do? Well, no, because you got in the way and you voided the word of God by your traditions. Now, I grew up in the church. I grew up in the Lutheran church. You know my history. You know I went away from the church for a while and then ended up back in the church and then wound up here doing this. And I have seen so much silliness in the church. Now, some of that silliness is wrapped in very holy-looking robes so that it looks like really God-honoring, holy religion. But it's still silliness. Arguing about which candle to light on what Sunday is silliness. It's a tradition. It's something that denominations have come up with to differentiate themselves from other denominations. We're this group. We're not that group. So our tradition is that we do this even though that group doesn't agree. Here, I'll give you an example. There's no question but that the Bible, the whole of the Bible, the Bible speaks of using musical instruments in the praise and worship of God. You cannot read the Psalms of David and miss the fact that David talks a lot about musical instruments. Everything from drums and cymbals to psalteries and harps and trumpets, and I mean big, noisy instruments. And yet there are congregations that believe that that the use of musical instruments in worship is somehow sinful. That when you sing, you have to sing a cappella to God, and the use of an instrument is somehow not appropriate worship to God. Okay, why do they think that? Tradition. It's their tradition. Let me give you some idea how that particular tradition began. There was a denomination in the United States just before the Civil War that were known as the Disciples of Christ, and the Stone-Campbell movement, the Restorationist movement, which was a good movement, a good idea. Let's restore the church back to what the Bible actually says, and let's truncate ourselves from all of those religious traditions and get back to how the church is supposed to meet and how the church is supposed to be. Okay, the movement started 
Good, started strong. I agree with the idea behind the movement. Then the Civil War came. And during the Civil War, the churches in the South were mostly devastated. And so the church in the North and the church in the South separated between what's called the Disciples of Christ in the North and the Church of Christ in the South. And because the Church of Christ couldn't afford at that point pianos and organs and things like that, they just started singing to God. Okay, fair enough. Just sing to God anyway. If you don't have instruments, just sing to God anyway. But then they made it a rule. Then they made it a tradition of their church that they just wouldn't use musical instruments and said that people who do are wrong. Okay, that's the point at which you've jumped the shark. You've gone from this is what we're doing because of the circumstances we live in, not unlike the church at Rome in the first century meeting in the catacombs of the dead just to avoid persecution. Okay, that's a good logical outcome of the persecution of the society. You're meeting in a private place where they're not going to see. Okay, that makes sense to me. Okay, after the Civil War, you don't have musical instruments. You're going to sing to God anyway. That makes sense to me. Saying that everybody who does use musical instruments isn't following the Bible because they don't do it the way you do it, that doesn't make sense to me. That's a tradition. And human beings take their traditions and try to impose them on other human beings and say, I've got the right way, you don't have the right way, even though the Bible doesn't talk about it, and even though the Bible speaks favorably of musical instruments in this case. Even though that's all true, we're going to say that you're wrong because you don't do things the way we do things. Tradition. Tradition has voided the word of God in just about every church I've ever been a part of. Now, GCA has its traditions, like we stand now when we pray. That's a tradition of GCA that I think is a good tradition. We have traditions like after the service, we have a time of prayer request. That's a tradition, but it's a good tradition. There's nothing wrong with tradition as a thing. But when your traditions get in the way of the word of God, then your traditions are voiding the word of God. Okay, what do I mean when I say the word tradition? Let's define tradition as anything that you say or do or think based on well, this is how we've always done it. Based on, well, my group does it this way. So I learned from my mom and my dad or my pastor or my denomination or my particular church body. I learned to do this thing even though it's not in the Bible anywhere. Where in the Bible does it say, don't go to movies? Doesn't say that. Where in the Bible does it say, don't smoke? Now, I know that's a controversial one because smoking, I think, is stupid. If you smoke, don't do it. It's a dumb idea. But does the Bible say don't do it? There are congregations that will not take communion with wine. They'll only take grape juice because they believe that wine is inherently evil based on their tradition. Yet the Bible says drink wine. 
Paul writing to Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake and you're off in infirmities. And then you have congregations that won't drink wine. So my point is traditions get in the way of the word of God, which is why for all these years at GCA, we've just tried to keep pounding the word. And this morning by Micah standing up and just reciting Romans 8, the word did what the word needed to do so that any of you that were listening intently to what he was saying came away with being moved by the words you heard because the spirit of God speaking by the word of God was speaking to your spirit, moved you by that until you were moved to say amen and in Steve's case, wow. Because the word of God is sufficient to do what God wants to do among God's people. Does that make sense? Yes. Because Jesus had to deal with it in his day. He had to deal with the Pharisees twisting the word of God and he's even going to give them an example the example he's going to give them has to do with giving, has to do with money, but also has to do with honoring your mother and father. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is going to say to the Pharisees, you've got a rule that's nowhere in the Bible where you can allow people to say that their money, their inheritance, the things with which they could help their aging mom and dad, you agree that they don't have to help their mom and dad with that money because they have devoted it to the temple. They've said that it's Corbin. And based on the Corbin rule, then that was set aside for the use of the temple. Even if your parents needed help, you were able to say, I'd love to help you, but I can't help you because I have devoted what I've got to the temple. When I die, it's all going to go to the temple. And so I can't help you with it. So sorry. And Jesus comes up with, what about honor your father and mother? Isn't that a commandment? Okay, what did they do? They voided the word of God. They voided a commandment of God because of their tradition. And Jesus is going to call them on it. Because I think, as many years as I've been running into human traditions, I think you ought to call people on it. I think when churches, when people, when preachers say, do this, be that, whatever, you ought to be able to say to them, where's that in the Bible? Give me chapter and verse for that. Thank you. And if you can't, then it is not binding on my conscience. If you're just making stuff up, I can make stuff up. Anybody in this room can make stuff up. But the stuff you make up won't save your soul. God's word has the power to save your soul. Why would you mess with it? Why would you void it in favor of your traditions? Okay, but before we get to Jesus calling out the Pharisees for their traditions, I started with that because of what uh, Micah read. Before that, we have to look at the story of Jesus walking on the water according to Mark. Now, Mark is going to talk about Jesus walking on the water the same way that Matthew talked about Jesus walking on the water. The big difference between the two stories, both of which are right on the heels of Jesus feeding 5,000, so we're talking about the same event. It's taking place in the same place. The basic essentials of the story are the same. But there's one great big difference. Matthew says, 
that when Jesus came walking on the water during the storm and came to them, that Peter got out of the boat and went to Jesus. Mark doesn't mention that. Doesn't that seem like an odd thing to mention or not mention? Because it seems to me as much criticism as Peter has taken through the years, because we get a really consistent personality profile of Peter, and through the years people have really made fun of Peter always putting his sandal in his mouth, always thinking, always doing the wrong things. But no matter what else you say about Peter, he walked on more water than any of you ever did. And so it seems to me like that would be an important part to add to the story, to include, to make sure that you say, oh, yeah, and then Peter got out of the boat, too, and walked on the water. Why doesn't Mark mention it? Well, I think this is one of the evidences, you know, that I'm always looking for evidences that the Bible is true, that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible stories are accurate and you can rest your soul on them. The reason that we don't see that story in the book of Mark is because Mark is essentially the gospel of Peter, as I said in the introduction. Peter is the source for Mark's writing. And Peter apparently wouldn't allow that that story, which would seem to aggrandize him, he wouldn't even allow that that come up. The same way that John wouldn't say, and I leaned back on Jesus' breast. I did that. And I asked Jesus, who is it that's going to betray? I did that. Because me and Jesus, we're buddies, we're pals. I'm really close. No, he didn't do that. In fact, when he made reference to himself, he just called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. I think Peter's doing the same thing here. Rather than inflating himself, he just leaves that part of the story out. Matthew covers it, but Mark doesn't mention that Peter walked on the water. So that's going to take us to Mark chapter 6. Turn there. We're going to start at verse 45, and we're going to compare it to Matthew's account, and then we will finish the morning by letting Jesus call out the Pharisees for their traditions. And immediately, says verse 45, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida, or to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Okay, now Matthew fills in a little more detail there. But I'm going to ask the same question I asked when we taught this in the book of Matthew, which was, okay, Jesus, who is absolutely sovereign, do you think when he told his disciples, get in the boat and go across to the other side of the sea to Bethsaida and I'll meet you there later, do you think he knew there was a storm coming? Yes. Yeah, he's in charge of storms. He's the one who makes storms stop. 
He's the one who can talk to the wind and say, peace, be still. And the wind just lays down at his feet. So do you think he knew that when he told his disciples, get in a boat and go out to the sea in the storm, do you think he knew that it was going to be really rough sledding? It was going to be really hard rowing. And they were going to panic in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the storm. Do you think he knew all that? Why did he do it? Why did he do that to them? Wouldn't it have been safer from a humanistic standpoint? Wouldn't it have been safer for him to say, hey, guys, there's a storm coming. Stay here with me. After the storm passes, we'll all go over to the other side. Wouldn't that have been the better part of wisdom? No, instead he says, get in the boat, go to the other side, and then a storm whips up. And he knows that, in fact, what we read a couple times here, even in Mark's short account, is that he's up praying in the hills. He goes up to a mountainside and is praying. So he and his father are complicit in sending the disciples into the midst of a storm. Why did he do that? I think for the exact same reason that he fed the 5,000 with the fish and the loaves. Because Mark's going to bring it up again and say that was a demonstration. That's Jesus demonstrating who he is. That he has that kind of control. He has that kind of authority. He has that kind of power. He has that kind of miraculous working ability because remember this is all about instilling faith in his apostles. Getting his apostles to trust that he was a complete savior. And that he had control over everything. And if that were true, that he even had control over them and their eternal well-being and that their faith and their trust in him was going to be sufficient to get them all the way to their heavenly destiny. So he keeps demonstrating to them who he is in order to inspire them to trust him. And so they're out there rowing against the heavy wind And he came to them walking on the sea. And then Mark adds, and he intended to pass them by. He walked like he was going somewhere. It's kind of like he was going to walk by the boat and go, how you doing, guys? Looks like a rough go right there. And just kept walking. I told you I'd meet you on the other side. I'm just going to get there ahead of you because I'm going to walk and you're going to row. And I'm just going to get there. It was so bad. The rowing was so bad. That while they were trapped in the middle of the sea, rowing against the wind, he had time to walk to them. He had time to get there. And he just looked, according to Mark, like he was just going to keep going. But when they saw him walking on the sea, rather than that faith that would say, Jesus, these people don't have anything to eat. Why don't we feed them? After all, you're the Lord of glory. You could probably do something miraculous here. Why don't you feed them? Instead, they were kind of trapped in their fleshly ideas. And they said, where are we going to buy enough bread for all these people? And then he turned to them and said, you feed them. He was trying to increase their faith every time. Rather than looking at him walking on the water and saying, look, it's Jesus. We're going to be okay. Look, it's him. He's coming to us. He's the Lord of glory. He's walking on the waves exactly like the Old Testament said he would. He's coming to us on the waves of the sea. Look, it's Jesus. Instead, what do we read? They thought it was a ghost. 
They thought it was a phantasm. It scared them. Again, always in the flesh, constantly missing the point of the lessons that Jesus is teaching them about who he is and what he's about. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were frightened. That means that they actually took the time to go, are you seeing this? Are you looking at what I'm looking at? There's a guy walking on the water. Are you seeing? They all saw him. It can't be a figment of somebody's imagination. So they figure, well, what is it? It's a phantasm. It's... But immediately then, and I really like Mark's use of the word immediately there, immediately while they were frightened, while they couldn't figure out what it was about, immediately he spoke to them and he said, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. This is very, very consistent. We've seen this a couple of times now in the Gospels, where Jesus shows up and people are immediately fearful, overwhelmed, awestruck, trying to understand what's happening. And notice that the comfort that they receive is never from within themselves. They never rev up their own faith. They never rev up their own sense of well-being. They never rev up the, oh, I'm going to be. It's always Jesus who provides the comfort. It's always Jesus who says, it's me. And then right behind that, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of Jesus. I'm sure if he walked in here right now, we'd be awestruck and we would fall at his feet. And many of us would immediately think about where we'd just been, what we just thought, what we just said, the last fight we had, the last evil thing we did, the last sin we committed. We'd be afraid. The Holy One is here. The first thing we're going to do is be fearful. It's going to be Him saying, it's okay, it's me. Don't be afraid. Because He is that complete a Savior. Whether your problem at the moment is a situation, like rowing too hard against a storm, or a complete lack of food, whatever your problem is, if it's, uh, we can't pay our stranger's tax, he's the one who can say, go open a fish's mouth and take a coin out and pay the tax. It's always him that is the solution. We humans are always the problem. Our emotions, our misunderstanding, our assumptions of the wrong thing, that's always the problem. The solution is always Jesus showing up and saying, it's okay, I got this. It's me. Don't be afraid. In the midst of our most fearful moments, it's good to remember that Jesus never leaves us, never forsakes us, and therefore we don't really have to be afraid. Amen. Whatever it is, he's got it. He's in charge of it. I like the phrase that I heard years and years ago. I've quoted it occasionally, that there's nothing that can reach you until it first passes through nail-scarred hands. He knows. He knew the storm. He knew the boat. He knew the disciples. He knew what they'd think. He knew all that, and yet... He walks to them. Notice again, too, they're in the midst of a storm. He's not with them. Can they get to him? Nope. They're in the impossible situation again. 
They can't get to him. He comes to them. And what does he do when he gets there? Tells them, it's okay, it's me. That's the answer. That's the answer to all life's difficulties. It's okay, it's me. I'm with you. I'll never forsake you. So don't be afraid. What's the big reason that most people will shy away from sharing their faith? Fear. Fear of men. Fear of persecution. Fear. Psychologists tell us that the, the biggest fear that humans have, or at least among the top three or something, is public speaking. People don't like to get up in front of other people and talk. That's a big fear. That's a big concern. And I think that carries over into our general desire to just be liked, to just be accepted. That's why it gets fearful to get up in front of people and say anything, because they might not like it. And if they don't like it, they won't like you. And you want to be liked, because you got up this morning and brushed your teeth and combed your hair and put on those clothes, because doggone it, you're ready to face the world, and the world is going to like you on the basis of what you put on. You're just so desirous of acceptance from other people that you will oftentimes not share your faith, not talk about the things that are most important to you, you'll say, I do, I do love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I do love my neighbor as myself. I do love the Christ who saved me. And then somebody will say something negative about Christ, or you'll be in a room where you know that it's generally an anti-Christian atmosphere, and you'll just kind of keep your mouth shut. You won't speak up and say, hold on, wait, I, I am a Christian I'm one of those that you're talking about right now. And the reason you won't do it is fear. That's my whole point. Why? Why are you afraid? It's like Elisha saying to his servant, those that are with us are more than them that are with them. You've got the armies of heaven behind you. You've got the glorious God and his omnipotent sovereign son behind you. And you're afraid. Well, left to yourself, left to your own flesh, left to your own devices, you should be afraid. But if you have the power of God behind you, and if you have Christ with you, what is there to be afraid of? Isn't that exactly what Micah said this morning out of Romans 8? If God be for us, who can be against us? So, I think there's a lot to this phrase. Jesus said it a lot of times in a lot of different circumstances. He said, take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. Even though your circumstances are so weird, you're in a boat that's not going anywhere because the storm is coming up. You can't row against it. And there's a guy walking on the water. Circumstances don't get weirder than that. Even though you're having trouble comprehending it, though you can't understand it, even though these circumstances are surrounding you, don't be afraid, he says. Why? I'm here. If I'm here with you, what's to be afraid of? And he got into the boat with them. And the wind stopped. So who was in charge of the wind? Why did he bring up the wind to begin with? Why did he bring up a storm in the first place? Show who's in charge. Show who's in charge. And to instill faith in them. 
so that the same way that there had to be a blind man so that he could heal somebody that was blind, the same way that there had to be a woman with an issue of blood so that he could heal her, so that he could demonstrate what faith looked like, the same way that Jairus' daughter had to die and he had to do other things so that she would die before he finally got to her so that there'd be a dead girl for him to raise, the same thing. There had to be a storm so that he could show that he's in charge of the storms. So that they would have complete confidence in him. So anybody have anything bad happen in their life lately? (laughs) Why? Why did that exist? Well, if it didn't exist for God's glory, if it didn't exist to increase your faith, if it didn't occur because of the purposes of God, then that would mean that there is randomness in God's universe. And that things happen because God is just capricious and lets people suffer for no good reason. Or whatever that thing is that you just went through that was so difficult for you was on purpose because God brought it into your life for his purpose to increase your faith, to drive you back to Christ because that's the place you find no fear. So whatever it is you're going through. My wife broke her foot this week. And did it so haphazardly that we both thought nothing really bad had happened. She stepped out the side door of the house. There's a railroad tie right there outside the side door. And her heel landed on that. And the front of her foot went down along the railroad tie into the garden. For those of you on the internet, I'm actually doing it right now. (laughs) But you can't see it. That was it. That was the move. That was it right there. That, that was the whole move right there. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing what she did right there. Okay. That, that. Broke her foot. I was supposed to preach Wednesday morning at the conference. We went on and drove to Chattanooga because she said, no, I'm fine. It was such a little thing. It's fine. I'm fine. Put some ice on it. Wrap it in an ace bandage. Go into Chattanooga. She was up all that night in agony which means we were both up all night. And I'm not complaining. I was up with her because it was bad. We get up the next morning, and I said, we're going home. And she said, well, you've got to preach. You've got to, no, no, you've got to get your foot looked at. That's what has to happen. So we got back here. My friend Alton Pickett, who has preached here at GCA before, preached Wednesday morning in my place. The conference went on. The conference is fine. That all doesn't matter as much as this trial came into our lives she doesn't get to walk for another six eight weeks now but she looks good on the motor scooter doesn't she (laughs) she's just wheeling her way around scooting around the house okay why why did that happen why did that we don't know what a random thing to have happen we don't know but i guarantee you by the time it's over we're going to have learned how to have confidence in god regardless of what else. And I can already apply some lessons that we've learned from it. I've preached at that conference. This would have been my 14th year preaching then. Okay, so that streak is over. And you know what happened at the conference because I wasn't there? Nothing. It went on fine. It was all good. It was fine. They don't need me because God doesn't need me. And so I I had to learn to just sit down and be quiet and just let other people go ahead and do the work that I had gone there prepared to do. 
There's lessons galore in these trials of life. But they have purpose. That's my point. They have purpose. They have reason. Or, like I said, God is capricious. And you see it right here. He's the one in charge of the wind. As soon as he got in the boat, the wind stopped. Means he's in charge of the wind. Which means when he sent his disciples by boat out onto the sea, he's the one that whipped up the wind. So that they would find out that they couldn't get anywhere. They couldn't row hard. They're going to be scared. They're going to be afraid. And then on top of all that fear, there's going to be a phantasm walking on the water. It's a really fearful night all the way around. And then he answers them, don't be afraid. It's me. And it all gets good again. So he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. And they were greatly astonished. They were awestruck. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves when Jesus fed 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes. But their heart was hardened, which is Mark's way of saying they still didn't have the Holy Spirit-inspired faith because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Even John says that. They didn't believe yet because the Spirit had not come. So even in light of these astounding miracles, Mark takes the time to say, and they still didn't get it, which I think is Peter's admission, we still weren't getting it. And maybe it's because Peter was willing to recognize that even though he walked on a bit of water, he also sank. He walked out there full of faith. He walked out there full of confidence. And then he looked at the waves, and he looked at the wind, and he looked at the sea, and what do we hear? He started sinking. And in the time it took to end up under the water, his focus went back where his focus was supposed to be in the first place. Lord, save me. I don't have the power to not sink. I don't have the power to keep myself above the waves. I can't keep me from drowning. There's a storm here. So what does he do? He looks to Christ. Save me. And I think that was Jesus' point all the way along. Mm -hmm. Me. It's about me. I'm the focus. I'm the one. And Peter has to admit, we still weren't in faith. We, we still didn't quite get it. We're still trying to deal with these things that we're seeing. But he's teaching, teaching, teaching them full and complete dependence on himself. And that's what Christianity is. Full and complete dependence on Christ. All right? right? So that's the walking on the water story. And right behind that, starting at verse 53, we just read that Jesus went to the Gennesaret and that he, just, he was just healing, just healing everywhere, just demonstrating his power over and over again. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at the Gennesaret and they moored at the shore. And when they had come out of the boat, Immediately the people recognized him and they ran about that whole country and began to carry about on their pallets those who were sick and they brought them to the place where they heard he was. And wherever he entered villages or cities or countrysides, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and entreating him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being cured. That's just Mark's concluding demonstration of the authority and the power 
that Christ has. So now he's established that this is the one who is the very son of God. He has all the power. He has all the authority. There's no realm of life where he is not completely sovereign. Whether it's sickness, whether it's demons, whether it's the devil himself, whether it's wind, whether it's nature, whether it's he's in charge of everything. If it's sickness, he's in charge of it. If it's food, he's in charge of it. If it's money, he's in charge of it. He's demonstrated his absolute authority over everything. Now, having established that, he has the absolute right and authority to go to the religious leaders and say to them, you're whitewashed sepulchers. I've already demonstrated who I am. I have complete authority and power, and God is with me. God has already testified, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What more do you want? Now he can say to the religious leaders, you're doing it wrong. And he's going to concentrate on this aspect of how they're doing it, their traditions. And the Jews were full of traditions. To this very day, the Jews are full of extra-biblical religious traditions that they have piled on to the Word of God. Anybody here seen Fiddler on the Roof? Hey, uh, tradition. <laughs> yeah, they even sing about it. They're so proud of it. Tradition made void the Word of God. Now, recognize that as Jesus is saying this, He's talking about the Old Testament. And he is arguing that the Old Testament was sufficient for everything they needed. The Old Testament had in it everything for them to understand their relationship with God and what God was going to do via a new covenant and via the Messiah and via the blood of the higher, better sacrifice. That's, that's all in the Old Testament. And he was saying to them, you have by your traditions, by the things you've added, by your arguments about mint and cumin and little spices and exact 10% down to the molecule and your arguments about whether you can eat an egg late on the Sabbath, by all the things that you've, that you've added to the word, you've made the word null and void. That, by the way, is still happening today. Today, people have religious traditions that they prefer to the Word of God. So I keep arguing, go back to the Word. What does the Word say? All right, here's Jesus' argument. Chapter 7, starting at verse 1. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed hands. Do you understand what the argument is? In a moment, Mark's going to explain it, because Mark is writing to a largely Gentile audience, and he knows that they're not aware of all the extra-Jewish traditions. So he's going to explain that the Jews would always make sure that they were ceremonially clean before they would eat. And at very least, they would make sure that if they were eating, they were eating with washed hands and washed pots and pans, which is a good health idea. But they were saying that beyond health, it was a religious idea. 
that you had to be ceremonially clean in order to make sure that you weren't putting impure things into your body. So they would follow the kosher rules. They would follow the rules of what foods were clean and unclean. And then they would make sure that they themselves were clean, all of which they did to try to keep themselves pure and righteous. And Jesus is about to blow that idea up. So they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, Mark explains it, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. That phrase means it was passed down to them. We do it because that's what we've always done. Not because we can find it in the Bible, but that's just what we do. Verse 4, And when they come from the marketplaces, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received, these traditions, in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. They had very specific rules about how to wash each of those things. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? I'll just throw this in. I already mentioned I grew up in the church. And I can't even begin to tell you how many times I have heard. Why don't you do things the way we do? When I let my hair grow and stopped wearing a tie to church. Oh, I'm wearing a tie this morning. It's a lovely tie I'm wearing this morning. But that's by choice. not by. Well, it might be a tradition. And I mean, growing up in the Lutheran church, there were just so many things they expected of me based on this is how we do it. And why don't you do it that way? Well, then if you don't do it the way we do it, then you can't come do what you don't do with us because we do it. Same thing here. Why don't your disciples walk according to the traditions of the elders? Those things that were passed on to us. But they eat their bread with impure hands. So they were thinking that people were actually making themselves more righteous and more holy based on the way they washed when they ate their clean foods. Jesus is about to blow that idea up. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now he's going to quote Isaiah 29, 13 to them. It says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they do worship me. Oh, yeah, they worship him. But in vanity. It's all part of their religious tradition to make them look good. Things that Jesus even pointed out, like they blow a trumpet before they give their alms in the temple so that everybody can see how the high holy men are doing their giving. Or how when they would fast, they would actually put ash on their face so that they looked like they were fasting. So the people could see that they were suffering for their religion. They had all these extra traditions they had piled on that were all vanity. They were all about themselves and not about God, not about the worship of God. And traditions to this very day are about lifting people up as opposed to lifting Christ up. 
Most every tradition you can think of, every tradition you can name, has something to do with people looking at other people and saying, those people aren't as good as I am because they don't adhere to the same traditions I do. What has that got to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with the worship of God or the proper assignment and understanding of who Christ is as Savior? So God had said about them through Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. And that's the problem. Once a tradition gets hold, that's what people cling to. My experience has been, let's see if this is also your experience, my experience has been most people groups, congregations, denominations, whatever their tradition is, it's usually something they can do. (laughs) So they can feel good about them. We believe that if you're really holy, you don't dance. So Charlie's out. Charlie's just so completely out. Good Christian people don't dance. Doesn't say that in the Bible. It says David danced before the Lord. It's a sign of worship. But then that gets a hold. Why? Usually because it's a bunch of people who either can't dance, don't want to dance, or have gotten together and said, let's just all as a group agree that none of us should dance. And then they impose it on you. Well, if you were a good Christian, you wouldn't dance. How many times have you heard the phrase, and I thought you were a Christian? Oh, boy. Yeah, because our tradition is... I was in Fort Worth one time a number of years ago. I was by a convention center, stopped at a light. And there was just a parade of men in white shirts and dark ties. Not printed ties, nothing fancy, no Mickey Mouse ties, no Warner Brother ties, no Bugs Bunny, no. Just straight ties, white shirts, walking across the... And the guy I was with said instantly, Baptist Convention. Turned out he was right. We went around the corner, and there was a sign for the Baptist Convention that was meeting there in Fort Worth. Yes, where does the Bible say that's the dress code? It doesn't. Why were they doing it? Tradition. It's just your tradition, and it's always a tradition that you can do so that you can feel better about you, so that you can say to God, I cleaned me up. Look at how much better I made me. That must be how good I am and how righteous I am. Therefore, I deserve to be saved. And Jesus said they neglect the commandment of God because they hold to the tradition of men. They teach as doctrines the precepts of men. And the precepts of men can't save you. Is that obvious enough? Yes. The law of God, the precepts of God, the teaching of God, those things, the word of God, those have the ability to save your everlasting, never dying soul. The precepts of men just give you the opportunity to look good for five minutes and feel good about yourself. It does nothing for you eternally. And yet people prefer the traditions because they can do it. And they don't like the word of God that says you're incapable. You can't do it. 
You are completely dependent on Christ as a complete Savior to do it for you utterly and completely. There's no part of you that is sufficient to obligate God to save you. People don't like that. They like the tradition that says, if you just do this, dress like us, act like us, tithe like us, then you're, you're going to heaven definitely. Well, it's the same way back in Jesus' day. Men have always preferred what they can do over what God has said. So he was saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. He called them out for it. Yeah, you, you do it nicely, easily, without even thinking. You just automatically keep your tradition and when the word of God comes to you and convicts you, you set that aside. That's not important as long as I'm doing my thing. As long as my church approves of me. As long as my denomination agrees, then I'm good, regardless of what the word of God says. So then he gives them an example. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. That's a commandment. Which one? Number five. Good, okay. Moses says, honor your father and your mother. And he says, he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother anything of mine that you might have been helped by, is Corban. That is to say, it's already given. It's already dedicated. So you then no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, even though it says, honor your father and your mother. You don't allow that to happen. Thus, you have invalidated the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Why would they be so adamant about the Corbin rule? Why would they allow people who are supposed to honor their father and their mother why would they allow them to get away with saying, gee, I'd love to help you, mom and dad, but I can't because what I've got has already been dedicated. It's dedicated to God and the church, and so I, I can't help you out. And the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, are good with that rule. Why? They get money. It makes them rich. The vast majority of the traditions I've ever seen in the church have to do with money. It's just another way of manipulating you into giving for all the wrong reasons. There's a good reason to give. It's because you're, follow me here, Christian. And part of the Christian character is that you are generous, is that you are kind, that you're loving to your neighbor, that you look out after each other. It's a perfectly good reason. I don't need to give you more reasons. I can make some up. I can tell you that if you give me enough money, I can get your aunt out of purgatory. <laughs> There's no evidence that I actually could do that. But if I can convince you of it, I can raise so much money, I can build St. Peter's Basilica. Because that's how St. Peter's got built. On the back of Tetzel going out telling money that every time pennies into the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Where do they get that? It's not in the Bible anywhere. It's a tradition. 
So he calls them out for the fact that they allow the Corbin rule and other such traditions that are man-made traditions, and this is his conclusion. After he called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him, but the things which proceed out of a man are what defile the man. Verse 16 says, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus is saying is, there's no food that you're going to eat that is the cause of your defilement. Even if you eat with unwashed hands, that may make you sick. It does not make you sinful. It does not get you any closer to hell and further away from heaven. Because, Jesus is about to say, because it goes into your digestive system and then leaves your body. You may think that you buy food. The truth is you rent it. It's in you for a little while and then it's just gone, gone. And you want it gone. It's just gone. And after it takes that trip through your body, Jesus says, that does nothing to you spiritually. You want to know what does stuff to you spiritually? It's what comes out of you. What comes out of your mouth? What comes out of your heart? What comes out of your mind? Those depraved things are what defiles you. Verse 17, and when leaving the multitude, he entered the house and his disciples questioned him about that teaching, about that parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart. It goes into his stomach and then is eliminated. Mark adds parenthetically, thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, from inside you, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts fornications. Notice, by the way, there that the fornication is not just something you do. He said it proceeded out of your heart. You thought it before you did it. The same way as every crime. Any murder that men commit, first it enters your mind. And so he says, as those things proceed out of you, that's what makes you defiled. Every evil thought fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, that's lying, and sensuality, heaping it on your flesh, envy that somebody might have something you don't have, slander, talking bad about other people, pride, self-sufficiency, dignity, and foolishness. And is there anything more foolish than taking the very word of God, which is sufficient to save your soul, and voiding that in favor of stuff men made up? That's just foolish. But where did it come from? It proceeded out of men. 
Men thought it. Men promoted it. Men got other people to think it with them. That becomes our tradition. We're that group. Verse 23 says, all these evil things proceed from within, and that's what defiles a man. So what you eat, and the traditions of the Jews that said how you eat, and what foods you eat, and whether your hands are clean, and the pots are clean, and the dishes are clean, they were so fearful that what they put into their mouth was going to somehow make them less holy. And Jesus said, that's not where the problem is. If you're fortunate enough to have some food in front of you, eat. It's okay. That can't defile you. Because like I said, it's only with you a short time. But the stuff that proceeds out of your evil, wicked heart is with you all the time. And that stuff just keeps bubbling up inside you. And then all kinds of pernicious behavior comes about as a result. And Jesus says, that's why you're guilty. That's what defiles you. You need, I believe he's saying, I believe the subtext is here. It's not really in the text right here, but if you want to pencil it in, I think he's getting at, you need a savior. And I'm it. And that's why he kept proving to the disciples over and over again that he had the power over everything, which means he even has the power enough to save them from the wickedness he keeps demonstrating is in them. Make sense? All right. Any questions about that? Well, the bright side is is that you would be accepted by your former church now, your hair length and your tie. I feel really good about that too. Yeah, and I always go back to them. And I still don't dance. Yeah. So, yeah. See, I'm good. I'm in. <laughs> okay. Anything else? Anybody want to try to top that bit of sarcasm? <laughs> Very strange, huh? I'll tell you, I'm only bringing this story up again because it's always been amusing to me. Many years ago, we had an ex-Church of Christ guy here who went to Lipscomb University here in Nashville, which is a Church of Christ school. And he used to sing in the male chorus. And when they sang together, they would stand on risers. And Lipscomb was just like the school you're talking about. No dancing. But when the male chorus sang, they could do choreography (laughs) to the songs they were singing as long as, and this is what I find an astounding differentiation, as long as the choreography was only done with the upper body. They could do anything they wanted with their hands and all this stuff, but they weren't allowed to move their lower body at all. And this fellow said to me, we used to be in the back row, so we used to move the bottom of our body and nobody ever knew. (laughs) Now that is interesting on so many different levels. (laughs) Because if the lower body movement was in fact sinful to begin with, then he just admitted that they regularly sinned anyway. 
but it was okay because no one could see them because on the riser somebody standing in front of them so he was justifying his sin based on nobody could see it and yet he knew what the rule was don't do it but he was willing to do it because he wanted to break that rule because we're just rule breakers by nature as soon as you tell a kid don't eat that cookie they're going to eat that cookie we just want to break rules so the church of Christ made up a rule no choreography with your lower body and they were just so proud that they got away with it anyway people are going to get away with it whatever the rule is going to get away with it uh, last week Micah last week you caused a fair bit of consternation because you broke one of our GCA traditions you didn't tell everyone to stand when they prayed and several people came up to me and said what are we doing are we supposed to stand what do we do? what do we do they didn't know what to do without instruction so because we've always done it that's what we always do so adhere will you all right I know say goodbye to the internet congregation thank you for listening to this week's salvation by grace Sunday morning message Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.